Chapter 15 of An American Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Calm Dragon. An American Politician by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter 15. Pocock Vancouver was also abroad in the snowstorm. He would not in any case have stayed at home on account of the weather, but on this particular morning he had very urgent business with a gentleman who, like Lamb, rose with the lark, though he did not go to bed with the chickens. There are no larks in Boston, but the scream of the locomotives answers nearly as well. Vancouver, accordingly, had himself driven at an early hour to a certain house not situated in the West End, but of stone quite as brown and having a bay window as prominent as any sixteen-foot front on Beacon Street. Those advantages, however, did not prevent Mr. Vancouver from wearing an expression of fastidious scorn as he mounted the steps and pulled the polished German silver handle of the doorbell. The curl on his lip gave way to a smile of joyous cordiality as he was ushered into the presence of the owner of the house. "'Indeed, I'm glad to see you, Mr. Vancouver,' said his host, whose extremely Celtic appearance was not belied by unctuous modulation of his voice and the pleasant roll of his softly aspirated consonants. This great man was no other than Mr. Patrick Ballamalloy. He received Vancouver in his study, which was handsomely furnished with bright green wallpaper, a sideboard on which stood a number of decanters and glasses, several leather easy-chairs, and a green china spittoon. In personal appearance, Mr. Patrick Ballymolloy was vastly more striking than attractive. He was both corpulent and truculent, and his hands and feet were of a size and thickness calculated to crush a paving stone at a step, or to fell an ox at a blow. The nails of his fingers were of a hue which was made artificially fashionable in eastern countries, but which excites prejudice in western civilization from an undue display of real estate. A neck, which the Minotaur might have justly envied, surmounted the thickness and roundness of Mr. Ballymolloy's shoulders, and supported a head more remarkable for the immense cavity of the mouth, and for a quantity of highly pomade sandy hair, than for any intellectuality of the brows, or high-bred finesse of the nose. Mr. Ballymolloy's nose was nevertheless an astonishing feature and at a distance called vividly to mind the effect of one of those great glass bottles of red and water, behind which apothecaries of all degrees put a lamp at dusk, in order that their light may the better shine in the darkness. It was one of the most surprising feats of nature's alchemy, that a liquid so brown as that contained in the decanters on Patrick's sideboard should be able to produce and maintain anything so supernaturally red as Patrick's nose. Mr. Ballymolloy was clad in a beautiful suit of shiny black broadcloth, and the front of his coat was irregularly but richly adorned with a profusion of grease spots of all sizes. A delicate, suggestive mezzotint shaded the edges of his collar and cuffs, and from his heavy gold watch-chain depended a malachite seal of unusual greenness and brilliancy. Vancouver took the gigantic outstretched hand of his host in his delicate fingers, with an air of cordiality which, if not genuine, was very well assumed. "'I'm glad to see you, sir,' said the Irishman again. "'Thanks,' said Vancouver. "'And I am fortunate in finding you at home.' Mr. Ballymolloy smiled, and pushed one of his leather easy-chairs towards the fire. Both men sat down. "'I suppose you are pretty busy over this election, Mr. Ballymolloy,' said Vancouver blandly. 
Now that's just it, Mr. Vancouver, replied the Irishman. That's just exactly what's the matter with me. For indeed I am very busy, and that's the truth. Just so, Mr. Ballamalloy, especially since the change last night, I remember what a good friend you have always been to Mr. Jobbins. Well, as you say, Mr. Vancouver, I have been thinking that I and Mr. Jobbins are pretty good friends, and that's just about what it is, I think. Yes, I remember that on more than one occasion you and he have acted together in the affairs of the state, said Vancouver thoughtfully. Ah, but it's the soul of him that I like, answered Mr. Ballymolloy very sweetly. He has such a beautiful soul, Mr. Jobbins. It does me good, and indeed it does, Mr. Vancouver. As you say, sir, a man full of broad human sympathies. Nevertheless, I feel sure that on the present occasion your political interest will lead you to follow the promptings of duty and to vote in favor of the Democratic candidate. I wish you and I did not differ in politics, Mr. Ballymolloy. And indeed, there is not so very much difference, if it comes to that, Mr. Vancouver, replied Patrick in conciliating tones. But it's just what I have been thinking, that I will vote for Mr. Harrington. It's a matter of principle with me, Mr. Vancouver, and that's it exactly. And where should we all be without principles, Mr. Ballymolloy? Indeed, I may say that the importance of principles in political matters is very great. And it's just the greatest pity in the world that everyone has not principles like you, Mr. Vancouver. I'm speaking the truth now. According to Mr. Patrick Ballymolloy's view of destiny, it was the truth and nothing but the truth. He knew Vancouver of old, and Vancouver knew him. You flatter me, sir, said Pocock, affecting a pleased smile. To tell the truth, there is a little matter I wanted to speak to you about if you can spare me half an hour. Indeed, I'm most entirely delighted to be at your service, Mr. Vancouver, and I'm glad you came so early in the morning. The fact is, Mr. Ballymolloy, we are thinking of making an extension on one of our lines, a small matter, but of importance to us. I guess it must be the branch of the Pocahontas and Deadman's Valley you'll be speaking of, Mr. Vancouver, said the Irishman with sudden and cheerful interest. Really, Mr. Ballymolloy, you are a man of the most surprising quickness. It is a real pleasure to talk with you on such matters. I have no doubt you understand the whole question thoroughly. Well, it's of no use at all to say I know nothing about it, because I have heard it mentioned, and that's the plain truth, Mr. Vancouver. And it will take a great deal of rail, too, and that's another thing. And where do you think of getting the iron from, Mr. Vancouver? Well, I had hoped, Mr. Ballymolloy, said Vancouver, with some affected hesitation, that as an old friend we might be able to manage matters with you. But, of course, this is entirely unofficial, and between ourselves. Mr. Ballymolloy nodded, with something very like a wink of a one-bloodshot eye. He knew what he was about. And when will you be thinking of beginning the work, Mr. Vancouver, he inquired after a short pause. That is just the question, or rather, perhaps, I should say the difficulty. We do not expect to begin work for a year or so. And surely that makes no difference then at all, returned Patrick. For the longer the time, the easier it will be for me to accommodate you. Ah, but you see, Mr. Ballymolloy, it may be that in a year's time these newfangled ideas about free trade may be law, and it may be cheaper for us to get our rails from England as Mr. Vanderbilt did three or four years ago, when he was in such a hurry, you remember? And, indeed, I remember it very well, Mr. Vancouver. Just so. Now you see, Mr. Ballymolloy, I am speaking to you entirely as a friend, 
though I hope I may before long bring about an official agreement. But you see the difficulty of making a contract a year ahead, when a party of Democratic senators and congressmen may by that time have upset the duty on steel rails, don't you? And indeed I see it as plain as day, Mr. Vancouver. And that's why I was saying I wished everyone had such principles as yourself. And I'm telling you no lie when I say it again. Verily, Mr. Ballymolloy was a truthful person. Very well. Now, do not you think, Mr. Ballymolloy, that all this talk about free trade is great nonsense? And surely it will be the ruin of the whole country, Mr. Vancouver. Besides, free trade has nothing to do with democratic principles, has it? You see, here I am, the best Republican in Massachusetts, and here are you, the best Democrat in the country, and we both agree in saying that it is great nonsense to leave iron unprotected. Ah, it's the principle of you I like, Mr. Vancouver, exclaimed Ballymolloy in great admiration. It's your principles are beautiful, just. Very good, sir. Now, of course, you are going to vote for Mr. Harrington today, or tomorrow, or whenever the election is to be. Don't you think you might say something to him that would be of some use? I believe he is very uncertain about protection, you see. I think you could persuade him somehow. Well, now, Mr. Vancouver, it's the truth when I tell you I was just thinking of speaking to him about it, just a little before I went up to the State House, and indeed I'll be going to him immediately. I think it's the wisest plan, said Vancouver, rising to go, and we will speak about the contract next week, when all this election business is over. Ah, and indeed, I hope it will be soon, sir, said Bolly Malloy. But you'll not think of going out again in the snow without taking a drop of something, will you, Mr. Vancouver? He went to the sideboard and poured out two stiff doses of the amber liquid. Since you are so kind, said Vancouver, graciously taking the proffered glass. He knew better than to refuse to drink over a bargain. Well, here goes, he said. And luck to yourself, Mr. Vancouver, said Bolly Malloy. I think you can persuade him somehow, said Vancouver, as his host opened the street door for him to go out. And indeed, I think so too, said Bolly Malloy. Then he went back to his study and poured out a second glass of whiskey. And if I cannot persuade him, he continued in soliloquy, why then, it will just be old Jobbins who will be senator. And that's the plain truth. Vancouver went away with a light heart, and the frank smile on his delicate features was most pleasant to see. He knew John Harrington well, and he was certain that Mr. Ballymolloy's proposal would rouse the honest wrath of the man he detested. Half an hour later, Mr. Ballymolloy entered Harrington's room in Charles Street. John was seated at the table, fully dressed, and writing letters. He offered his visitor a seat. So the election is coming on right away, Mr. Harrington, began Patrick, making himself comfortable and lighting one of John's cigars. So I hear, Mr. Ballymolloy, answered John with a pleasant smile. I hope I may count on you, in spite of what you said yesterday. These are the times when men must keep together. Now, Mr. Harrington, you not believe that I could go to the House and vote against my own party, surely. Will you now? said Patrick. But there was a tinge of irony in his soft tones. He knew that Vancouver could make him a great and advantageous business transactions, and he treated him accordingly. John Harrington was, on the other hand, a mere candidate for his twenty votes. He could make John senator if he chose, or defeat him if he preferred it, and he accordingly behaved to John with an air of benevolent superiority. I trust you would do no such thing, Mr. Ballymolloy, said John gravely. 
without advocating myself as in any way fit for the honors of the Senate, I can say that it is of utmost importance that we should have as many Democrats in Congress as possible, in the Senate as well as in the House. Surely you don't think I doubt that, Mr. Harrington, and indeed the Senate is pretty well Democratic as it is. Yes, said John, smiling, but the more the better, I should think. It is a very different matter from the local legislature, where changes may often do good. Indeed, and it is, Mr. Harrington. And will you please to tell me what you will do about free trade when you are in the Senate, sir? I am afraid I cannot tell you anything that I did not tell you yesterday, Mr. Ballymolloy. I am a tariff reform man. It is a great democratic movement, and I should be bound to support it, even if I were not myself so thorough a believer in it as I am. Now see here, Mr. Harrington, it's the gospel's truth I'm telling you, when I say you're mistaken. Here are plenty of us Democrats who don't want the least little bit of free trade. I'm in the iron business, Mr. Harrington, and you won't be after thinking me such an all-powerful galoot as to cut my own nose off, will you? Well, not exactly, said John, who was used to many peculiarities of language in his visitors. But of course iron will be the thing last on the tariff. I am of opinion that it is necessary to put enough tax on iron to protect home producers at the time of greatest depression. That is fair, is not it? I dare say you may think so, Mr. Harrington, said Ballymolloy, knocking the ashes from a cigar. But you are not an iron man, now are you? Certainly not, said John, but I have studied the question, and I know its importance. In reformation of the tariff, iron would be one of the things most carefully provided for. Oh, I know all that, said Ballymolloy, somewhat roughly, and there's not much you can tell me about tariff reform that I don't know, neither. And when you have reformed other things, you'll be for reforming iron, too, just to keep your hands in. And, indeed, I've no objection whatever to your reforming everything you like, so long as you don't interfere with me and mine. But I don't trust the principles of the thing, sir. I don't trust them the least little bit. And for me, I would rather there were not to be any reforming at all, except for the Chinamen. And I don't care much for them, neither, and that's a fact. Very good, Mr. Ballymolloy. Every man has a right to his free opinion, but we stand on the reform platform, for there is no country in the world where reform is more needed than it is here. I can only repeat that the interests of the iron trade stand high with the Democratic Party, and that it is highly improbable that any law will interfere with iron for many years. I cannot say more than that, and yet stick to the facts. Always stick to the facts, Mr. Harrington. You will find the truth a very important thing indeed, and good principles, too, in dealing with the plain-spoken men like myself, sir. Stick to the truth, Mr. Harrington, forever and ever. I propose to, Mr. Ballymolloy, answered John, internally amused at the solemn matter of his interlocutor. And then I will put the matter to you, Mr. Harrington, and indeed it's a plain matter, too, and not the least taste of dishonesty in it at all. I've been thinking I'd make you a senator, if you'll agree to go against free trade. And that's just what I'll do, and no more. It is impossible for me to make such a bargain, Mr. Ballymolloy. After your exposition of the importance of truth, I am surprised that you should expect me to belie my whole political life. As I have told you, I am prepared to support laws to protect iron as much as is necessary. Free trade nowadays does not mean cutting away all duties. It means a proper adjustment of them to the requirements of our commerce. A proper adjustment of duties could not possibly be interpreted to mean any injury to the iron trade. 
You may rely upon that, at all events. Oh, and I'm sure I can, said Ballymolloy incredulously, and he grew, if possible, redder in the face than nature and the action of alcohol had made him. And I'm not only sure of it, but I'll swear it's gospel truth. But then you know I'm of opinion that by the time you've done reforming the other things, the reformed gentlemen won't like it. And then they'll just turn around and eat you up unless you reform us too. And that just means the ruin of us. Come now, Mr. Ballymolloy, that is exaggeration, said John. If you will listen to me for a moment. I haven't got the time, sir, and that's all about it. If you'll protect our interest and promise to do it, you'll be senator. The election is coming on, Mr. Harrington, and I'm sorry to see you thrown out. Mr. Ballymolloy, I had sincerely hoped that you would support me in this matter, but I must tell you once more that I think you are unreasonable. I vouch for the sufficient protection of your interest, because it's the belief of our party that they need protection. But it is not necessary for you to have an anti-reform senator for that purpose, in the first place. And secondly, the offer of a seat in the Senate would never induce me to change my mind, nor to turn round deny everything that I have said and written on the subject. Then that is your last word of all, Mr. Harrington, said Bolly Malloy, heaving his heavy body out of the easy chair, but his voice, which had sounded somewhat irate during the discussion, again rolled out in mellifluous tones. Yes, Mr. Bolly Malloy, that is all I have to say. And indeed it is not so very bad at all, said Patrick. You see, I just wanted to see how far you were likely to go, because though I'm a good Democrat, sir, I'm against free trade in the main points, and that's just the truth. But if you say you will stand up for iron right through, and use your best judgment, why, I guess you'll have to be senator after all. It's a great position, Mr. Harrington, and I hope you'll do honor to it. I hope so indeed, said John. Can I offer you a glass of wine or anything else, Mr. Ballymolloy? Indeed, and it's dirty weather, too, said Patrick. Thank you, I'll take a little whiskey. John poured out a glass. You won't let me drink alone, Mr. Harrington, inquired Patrick, holding his tumbler in his hand. To oblige him, after the manner of the country, John poured out a small glass of sherry and put his lips to it. Ballymolloy drained the whiskey to the last drop. You were not really thinking I would vote for Mr. Jobbins, were you now, Mr. Harrington? He said with a sly look on his red face. I always hoped that men of my party were to be lied upon, Mr. Ballymolloy, said John, smiling politely. Very well. They are to be relied upon, sir. We are, every man of us, to the last drop of Christian blood in our blessed bodies, said Patrick, with a gush of patriotic enthusiasm, at the same time holding out his heavy hand. Then he took his leave. You had better have said, to the last drop of bourbon whiskey in the blessed bottle, said John to himself when his visitor was gone. Then he sat down for a while to think over the situation. That man will vote against me yet, he thought. He was astonished to find himself nervous and excited for the first time in his life. With characteristic determination he went back to his desk and continued the letter which the visit of the Irish elector had interrupted. Meanwhile, Mr. Patrick Ballamalloy was driven to the house of Republican candidate Mr. Jobbing. End of chapter 15